the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away on the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and, and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups, by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, and broke the loaves, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Hi, I am Tyler Dawn Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five years worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my websites. Um, past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com and... Um, if you haven't heard yet, I have another radio show now on Hebrew Nation Radio called Context for Kids, and we're going through the Bible starting in Genesis and talking about God and talking about the Messiah, and I don't know, all the way through, hopefully. <laughs> anyway, um, if you, I don't know exactly when that's airing at this point. It will already be airing when this airs, but um, you can find... Um, past broadcasts of that one at contextforkids.podbean.com and also the link is on my podcast channel so all scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV the English Standard Version but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want and a list of my resources for these teachings can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com now I am calling the next two weeks 
echoes of Exodus, and for very good reason. Mark doesn't even try to hide what he's doing in linking these two incidents together thematically. All right. So we will be talking about the Exodus and Isaiah and some of the other prophets, uh, the Psalms, and about the Qumran, Qumran community. And we'll also have some fun talking about first century Jewish and Christian superstition about ghosts complete with a disturbing factoid from the text. But this week, we will focus on the difference between Herod's feast last week and Yeshua's, or you may call him Jesus's feast this week. Um, the invitees, the parallels to the first exodus and the new exodus prophesied by Isaiah, and how the Qumran community was set up. That's the Dead Sea Scrolls authors, okay? I also have a new book going into the book list, and it's a very good one for people who are new to studying Second Temple era, era biblical materials. And if you buy it, I am betting you're going to have to buy the other books in that series as well. So far, um, I have I have had everything it called for beside. Um, because I have the complete Mishnah commentary, the Dead Sea Scrolls in a couple of versions, a complete Pseudepigrapha, the complete Loeb's Josephus, um, and the Apocrypha. And I frankly have my supporters to thank for that, and my husband. <laughs> because, uh, because it's really expensive without donations. This radio gig actually doesn't pay me anything. <laughs> And I do it because I love the Lord. So, but, um, just thanking my, thanking my supporters. But, um, the new book that my dear friend, uh, Nikki bought me is called Reading Mark in Context, Jesus and Second Temple Judaism, edited by Ben C. Blackwell, John K. Goodrich, and Jason Maston. It's part of a new series, which now has three volumes. The, uh, other two being on Romans and Revelation, and I'm hoping their next volume is on Matthew, because we'll be doing that after Mark, but I've given them plenty of time. But they tie the extra-biblical materials to the text, and they teach you to read along. It's really awesome. I uh, think it was designed for biblical studies majors, okay? I wish I had it years ago when I was first starting out. Anyway, enough lollygagging here. Starting in verse 30, and this is still Mark chapter 6, by the way. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Now, this is the 12. In Luke, we also have the 70 going out, but this is, this is Mark. This is the 12 got sent out. Um, and in Luke, it's the 12 get sent out first and then the 70. So it's, it's very important to understand the context of this statement. Two sections ago, Yeshua had sent them out in groups of two. Preaching, casting out demons, anointing people, and healing them. Last week, we see this created such a stir in Galilee that Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch, the son of King Herod the Great, was terrified that Yeshua was John the Baptist raised and not reincarnated. That's different. From the dead, 
um, vindicated by God for his unjust murder. In fact, you know, we heard that the whole area is buzzing with rumors spreading like wildfire. People wondering who or what he is. Elijah? One of the other prophets? Um, and of course, John the Baptist. Some thought he was John the Baptist, and that's what Herod thought. This led into a, a lengthy account of exactly what happened to John, which was, of course, a foreshadowing of the fate of not only Yeshua, but also his own disciples. Verse 31. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For, you know, many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And this briefly touches on a recurring theme as well. Yeshua and his disciples are swamped with demands. Of course, this time is the first time his disciples have been swamped with demands. You know, so much so they can't even eat. And sometimes he is forced to retreat to a quiet place, but this time he takes them with him because they've been ministering too. And now they need to learn how to retreat and rest. We have previously seen this in Mark chapter 1 verse 35 and again in 45 and chapter 3 verse 9 and 20 and etc etc. The word for desolate place should be familiar by now it's eremos and um you know it's that wilderness term that um, was used when the um when the Bible, when the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek, it was used for the wilderness where, where Israel was, you know, after the ex, after the exodus out of Egypt. Um, and we're going to see a lot of words this week that are associated with what scholars call eschatology, which pertains to the last days in our reckoning, but in Yeshua's day, they were linked to the coming of the Messiah in general when he would conquer the foreign oppressors and those in the nations who had treated Israel badly and he would set up a renewed Davidic kingdom. So when you see references to resting, feasting, the wilderness, the Messiah, and the concept of a shepherd watching over sheep, these were often pointers to eschatological passages. And a lot of them pop up this week. Now, this doesn't mean that every mention of these words will be messianic throughout the entire scriptures, but they tend to show up when the passage is dealing with the inbreaking of the messianic age. Verse 32. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. So they went into in a boat to wherever it is it was that they were going. And we don't even have any idea where they started out, so we're flying blind here geographically, but they went again to the Eremos, our second wilderness reference. Um, just for a list of biblical references to rest being promised, and this isn't complete. Uh, we've got Deuteronomy 3.20, 12.9, 25.9, Joshua 1.3, and 15, 21, 44, Psalm 95, 7 through 11, Isaiah 63, 14, Jeremiah 31, 2, Hebrews 3, 7, verses 4, 13. And of course, I didn't give you time to write these down, but they're in the transcript on my website, which I post every Friday. All right. Now, many of them were going and, and recognized them. 
And they ran there on foot all from all the towns and got there ahead of him. Them, sorry. So evidently they are um, not rowing across, but at some distance from the shore where they can still be seen and people are following. And uh, as they come through the tiny settlements along the shore, it evidently creates quite the buzz. And they start picking up more and more people. I mean, you know, what else was there to do besides work? And the opportunity to be a part of something exciting didn't come along very often. And generally, excitement in the Roman Empire usually involved either sin or you're getting slaughtered. So there's that. Okay. By this time, with the six teams having been going out for, you know, who knows how long, because the text doesn't say... Excuse me. It may be that some of these people have seen the disciples, but not Yeshua yet. If the teams of disciples could heal and cast out demons, they must have been wondering what their leader was capable of. And what about all these rumors that he was actually Elijah or one of the other prophets returned at long last? If he was Elijah, that means their redemption from the Romans was drawing near. And it would be more exciting and puzzling than, than we could even possibly imagine. You know, we've got the narrator. They didn't have the narrator. <laughs> they also didn't have music playing in the background to let them know when something dramatic was about to happen. Now, notice that the crowd saw them going this time and not just Yeshua and recognized them. The disciples are now local celebrities. And is well known in the places um, they have visited, maybe more so than Yeshua himself. Okay, so verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So they finally get to shore and Yeshua sees that everywhere he goes, um, police ochlos. A great crowd, the many, the rabim of Isaiah's servant songs. You remember that? And Yeshua has compassion on them. Why? Because they're like sheep without a shepherd. But what does this mean? Well, they have no legitimate ruler. Quote unquote, king Herod is no king at all. And he's a foreigner who plays Judaism. He's paid by the Romans to keep the Jews from revolting. I mean, you know, really, he's not really actually paid by Rome. He is allowed to collect his own taxes and he has to pay them tribute. But, you know, he is the chief collaborator in charge. This mockery of a king of the Jews who just had or maybe long since had John the Baptist murdered, whom Josephus credited with being an incredibly popular religious leader, John the Baptist, not, you know. Herod. The chief priests and the high priestly family are also in the pocket of Rome, corrupt and growing richer and richer at the expense of the poor of the land. The Pharisees are the closest to uh, legitimate lay leaders that they have, but the Pharisees themselves have no formal power whatsoever. They're simply limited to their influence in matters of determining how commandments are kept. Now, remember our eschatological words, right? Here we have shepherd paired with sheep. I want to show you how this tied in, ties in with um, Numbers 27, 
verses um, 16 through 18. Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as a sheep that have no shepherd. Okay. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. In the Torah, Moses is succeeded by Joshua or Yehoshua the son of Nun. Yeshua, of course, is the Aramaic short form of Yehoshua. In Greek, the transliteration is exactly the same as we see for um, Joshua in, in the Septuagint, you know, which is the authorized translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek in uh, the second or third century before the common era. Jesus, or Jesus, sorry. In Zechariah, we even have the name of the Messiah given in the form of an interactive prophecy performed by Zechariah. Um, of course, I didn't put the chapter, but I <laughs> think it's 14. Um, Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out of this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Now, remember, because we've talked about this briefly before, there are five prophecies concerning the branch, in all caps, in the prophets, and you will see, you know, you see the word in all caps in both Jewish and Christian Bibles because these are recognized messianic prophecies. But it is only in Zechariah that the name of the Messiah is given as Joshua, Yeshua, which gets transliterated from Hebrew into Greek as Iesus, and from Greek into Latin as Iesus, and then into English as Jesus. I left out a step and the explanations for a lot, but we really have the same name that was prophesied for the branch, the Messiah. And remember, the Messiah is greater than the pronunciation of his name. It wasn't his name nailed up there on the cross. It was, it was the man. Okay, so he is the only one given by God so that his people would not be like sheep without a shepherd. And remember in the second servant song, in Isaiah 49, 6, that it was considered too small a task for the servant to simply save Israel, but he was given the task of saving the nations as well. Oh, here it is. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Isaac. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. And that's some pretty heavy stuff, okay? But let's take a look at Ezekiel chapter 34, 1 through 6, and 11 through 5. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah! Shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. 
you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you shall not you, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beast. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is... When he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into a la their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. They shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. This is the context for what's about to happen here, so hang on to your hats if you're wearing any. Verse 35, we're back in Mark chapter 6. Verse 35, and when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Okay, third reference to Eremos, the wilderness. Are you seeing the theme here? We have the people who have followed Yeshua to this desolate place. Somewhere near the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And they have stayed with him until it became late which meant that it would soon not be a safe time to be traveling in the wilderness in Galilee because there are wild animals. Even in a group, it was dark, so it could be dangerous just as it would be for sheep traveling at night. Verse 36, send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Of course, this was a ridiculous notion. These are small fishing and agricultural villages, and they might have a few hundred inhabitants, tops. But even if it had a thousand, there would not be enough bread for so many people. What they're really saying is, we've got to get rid of these people before things get ugly, because there is no food, and there are thousands of them following us. What the heck are we going to do? But Yeshua is about to counteract their true underlying heart issue, which is their belief that um, these people are not our problem. Verse 37. But, you but he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread? and give it to them to eat? You know, make no mistake. <laughs> <laughs> 
that was snarky. It was sarcastic. It was it was exasperated. It was it was frustrated. They issued a challenge to him, and uh, he challenged them right back. And they, you know, it's it's like this volleyball game. You know, they're they're batting it back and forth, seeing who can drop it. Well, she was not going to drop the ball. And he's teaching them an important lesson. He's teaching all of us an important lesson. And the important lesson is the people are our problem. They're there for us to serve. They're there for us to feed. And we will be right back in just a few minutes here. This is Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome back to Character in Context. And this week we are talking about the feeding of the 5,000. You know, this is the only account that's actually mentioned in all four Gospels. As a matter of fact, his miraculous feedings, if we don't count the water into wine, because that doesn't really count as a miraculous feeding, they, they were well fed already. <laughs> but... You got um, the 5,000 and the 4,000 in Matthew, the 5,000 and the 4,000 in Mark, and you got the 5,000 in Luke and the 5,000 in John. So obviously this is really, really important and central to all four of the gospel accounts and what they were trying to teach and get across to us. And I hope that you're starting to see from what I've talked to you about from Numbers and um, Zechariah and Ezekiel how incredibly important and central this account is to Yeshua's identity. Anyway, so we'll go back to the text here. Uh, again, we're in chapter 6 of the Gospel of John, and this is verse 37. And they, and they had just uh, said, you know, send them away so they can go buy something to eat, which I'm sure they knew it was bogus because there was nowhere that 5,000 people could go in these tiny little fishing villages to find food, especially since those fishing villages were probably empty. Right? All right. And uh, he said, no, you get them something to eat. And he said, what, are we supposed to, like, spend, you know, 200 denarii and buy stuff for all these people? Are you kidding me? He, they probably didn't say that last part. That was just me. Okay. And Yeshua volleys right back. Verse 37, But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Now, Yeshua's plainly saying here, These people most certainly are our problem because you know, that's what they were saying. These guys aren't our problem. They send them away. And, you know, see, these people most certainly are our problem and you need to feed them. Weren't these Yeshua's words to Peter at his restoration after the resurrection? Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Let's remember where the disciples have been up to the beginning of this story. They've been ministering to these people. Right? Staying at their homes and eating from their tables. They received hospitality from these largely very poor people. And now they were being required to return that hospitality. 
they fed you while you were on the road and you don't look to me like you lost any weight. So you need to provide for their needs because now we are the hosts. Okay. We've got Herod's banquet versus Yeshua's banquet. Again, you know, nobody's going to lose their heads over this one. And um, for his suggestion, he is treated to the sarcastic snork fest. Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Now, 200 denarii was about a year's wages for a day laborer, so this would be a small fortune to a normal person. They may or may not have had that much money on them. I doubt it. But Yeshua's throwing the ball back in their court. Oh, well, if it's so easy to go to the villages around here and buy that much bread, then you do it. Truth is, they were caught. They knew it. They had wanted to send the people away knowing that there was no way for them to find sustenance. Now, this isn't unprecedented. When the Israelites were complaining about the manna and longing for Egypt, Moses said this to Yahweh in Numbers 11, verses 13 through 15. Where am I to get meat to give all these people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. Oh my gosh, it rhymes. Okay, <laughs> so much funnier now. Um, I am not able to carry this, all these people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once if I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. Okay, that part's not funny. But <laughs> sometimes stuff in the Bible, you read it out loud, it's like, oh, what were they thinking? Um, So, the translators, I mean. Like, they didn't read it out loud. Or maybe they just aren't as silly as I am. So, and of course, you know, Yahweh gave those whiners so much quail that they got sick of it. But we have no indications that these people are complaining about hunger. Just the disciples are complaining this time. You know, you're like, whoa there, how can you ask us to do what we are asking them to do? And now in response, we're going to see, you know, again, the only miracle that it's included in all four Gospels. Therefore, it's also the most important miracle, you know, with the exception of the resurrection obviously so we need to pay attention you know it's also the longest miracle account in mark and in the entire new testament why is this so important because yeshua is going to reveal who he is in a dramatic way he is going to give everyone a glimpse of the upcoming messianic banquet He's going to reveal himself as greater than Moses and greater than Joshua. He is going to solidify his absolute authority over the natural world. He is going to dramatically compare his kingdom with the kingdom of Herod and Rome by providing instead of oppressing. He's going to reveal himself as the true shepherd who lays his sheep down in green pastures. Excited yet? I am. Okay, verse 38. And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. John chapter 6 tells us that it was Andrew who came back with the loaves and fish that he'd gotten from a boy. That's actually why he's my favorite disciple and why I named my son after him. It couldn't have been easy being Peter's brother, okay? Now, these loaves weren't Wonder Bread loaves. 
They were barley loaves, which would be about an inch thick and about eight inches long, just bread and fish. Not like Herod's huge spread and, you know, the guest list certainly wasn't elite. Certainly not likely that there was any ritual hand washing going on, as we will see in the Mark 7 controversy in a few weeks. No wine and bread. This wasn't Eucharistic. And the word Eucharist, it means, um, it, we get that for, it, it means, the Greek word means Thanksgiving. And so when you hear about the Eucharist, it's a, it's a meal of Thanksgiving. But, you know, we think of the Eucharist as, you know, the, the Last Supper, or the, uh, the Lord's Supper that, uh, that we're to do when we gather. Sharing wine and bread and his body and his blood. So this is, this was just satisfying fare for hungry people who weren't wealthy. Now, before I read the next bit, I want to read Psalm 23 because there is a lot there that we see here. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the most famous example of Yahweh as a shepherd in the Bible. Definitely the most famous psalm. It's important because the feeding of the 5,000 is a prophetic act. Now, I want to get to the miracle account. Verse 39, then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. Green grass or pastures are only mentioned four times in scripture. Heck, you know, the color of green is only mentioned 36 times and almost all those mentions are dealing with trees. Of the four mentions of green pasture, this one, Psalm 23, which we just read, and another, or is another, and um, Joel 2, verses 22, which talks about the fields of the Messianic kingdoms, and in Revelation where the green grass is burned up. So, 75% of the mentions of green grass are either blatantly or arguably messianic in nature, and especially when we see it combined with fig trees and vines in Joel, which are also messianic kingdoms symbols. Uh, my good friend, Dina Dye, she has an excellent series on the fig tree as a symbol, and the entire series is free on YouTube. I highly recommend it, and her as a teacher and author. And I am going to tag that YouTube teaching in the transcript when I put it up. Now, because the grass was green, we know that this was in the spring, sometime before May. The latter rains occurred in January and February, and the early rains occurred after Sukkot, the Festival of Tabernacles in the fall. Once late spring came around, there was very little green grass anywhere once the rain stopped and those scorching summer winds hit. Not really important, though, just, you know, a bit of context. Um, verse 40. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. 
this is where it starts to get totally cool. This is supposed to remind us of Exodus 18, verses 21 and 25. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God and who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. These numbers were so significant to the Jewish people that when the Qumran community um, sequestered and secluded themselves in the wilderness in their yachad, which is a word meaning unity, it's kind of ironic considering they weren't unified with anyone but themselves. You know, as we see in um, uh, 1QS, or better known as the rule of the community, it used to be called the manual of discipline, um, but they they just, they decided that wasn't a good name, so they changed it. They ordered their communities according to these numbers. 1QS um, now means that it was found in the first Qumran cave. That's the 1Q part, and the S stands for Serech, or which means rule. And this is from column 2 of the Giza Vermes translation, verses 19 through 25. Thus shall they do year by year, for as long as the dominion of Satan endures. The priests shall enter first, ranked one another according to the perfection of their spirit, then the Levites, and thirdly, all the people one after another in their thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, that every Israelite may know his place in the community of God according to the everlasting design. No man shall move down from his place, nor move up from his allotted position. For according to the holy design, they shall be, they shall all of them be in a community of truth and virtuous humility, of loving kindness and good intent, one toward another, and they shall all of them be sons of the everlasting company. <coughs> Excuse me. It was incredibly important to the Qumran community to try and become the perfect fulfillment of all the wilderness prophecies and scriptures. Reading their sectarian documents found among the Dead Sea Scrolls is an amazing window into how the Jews around the time of Christ were thinking. At least the extreme ones, anyway. <laughs> you know, they were a real piece of work. Ever see the Weird Al Yankovic video, Amish Paradise, where he's saying it's okay if the tourists make fun of him and kick him in the butt because he'll be laughing his butt off when they're burning in hell? Which is not representative of the Amish, okay? <laughs> but it's meant to be satire. It's funny. Um, anyway, this might as well have been written for real about the Qumran community. And they never would have had anything to do with the people whom Yeshua ate with, not in a million years. All right. Verse 41 and 42. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. Okay. So, he took what was given to him by that child, via Andrew, and prayed the bracha. Now, traditionally, whenever bread is eaten, there is also a special prayer, and there's also one for wine. The um, 
prayer for bread is Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Hamatzi Lechem Min Haaretz. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the Universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. So, Yeshua didn't fast on the Pharisees' fast days, and as we'll see, he didn't do the hand-washing ritual either. The, there are traditions that he did observe, all right? So, obviously, this is not commanded in Scripture, but it's good. And Yeshua took up the food offering, and he looked up to heaven and said the baracha, and broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples, and it was the disciples' job to feed the people. I love this, okay? This is the kingdom. God takes our meager offerings, you know, comparatively to his owning the cattle on a thousand hills, and he blesses them, and we give them to others. You know, the picture here is very clear. If God tells us to give him something or do something, and we obey and we give it to him, he can turn it into something insanely amazing. Okay, back to the text. We see echoes here of the three miraculous feedings in Scripture. The first is obvious. The giving of manna in the wilderness under the leadership of Moses during the Exodus. Yeah. Yes, that was, you know, that was quote-unquote just manna. You know, then we have the uh, miraculous provision of oil and flour to the widow of Zarephath after she fed Elijah the last of the food she had for herself and her son in 1 Kings 17. But then again, that little boy gave all he had to Yeshua. Okay, just the same. But again, you know, only bread um, in the Elijah feeding. Now, there's a lesser-known example from the prophet um, Elisha from 2 Kings 4, verses 42 through 44. I'm going to read it to you now. Actually, I take that back. I'm going to read them both to you now. <laughs> All right. First is um, the widow of Zarephath, um, 1 Kings 17. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and uh, when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake and bring it to me, and afterwards I will make, and afterward make something for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The jar of flour will not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day the Lord sends rains upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. And here's uh, the account from uh, 2 Kings 4. 
<coughs> starting in verse 42. A man came from Baal Shalishah, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elijah said, Give it to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. So we see that this looks very similar to the feeding of the 5,000, but again, only bread <coughs> and grain. grain. So they have barley, they have loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain. So the Israelites under Moses received meat, but it came with punishment for having insulted the manna and water they were provided with. And Yeshua gave them bread and fish, a thoroughly satisfying and nutritious meal. Probably the best meal most of them had eaten outside of Passover, the Passover Seder once a year. Now, what do we get from these accounts? And I have to say that we have zero indication from Mark's accounts that the people were aware of the miracle that had happened. Twelve baskets full of broken pieces, twelve tribes full of broken people, five thousand fed. Okay, one more scripture. This time from Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9, which we have never covered before on this show. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on the mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. <clears throat> okay, so this feeding of the 5,000 who followed him into the wilderness, an account that is included in all four Gospels, it's um, it's just a preview of the messianic banquet that is promised to come. And he didn't ask, hear me, because this is our character lesson. He didn't ask who was a sinner and who was a saint. He didn't ask if they were Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, Zealots, or the people of the land, or tax collectors, or prostitutes, or anything. Yeshua shows who he is through who he invites and accepts at his table, namely, anyone willing to follow him wherever he goes. These people were willing to walk or run or whatever along the shore just to keep up with him and his disciples. 
to see where they would set ashore, and they had no guarantees that it would be any time soon. They might have had to go back empty-handed, but they followed him uh, without any guarantees of success. He rewards that kind of endurance and persistence, okay? And these people actually weren't begging for healing. We don't see them pressing in or demons crying out, which, you know, speaks on on well of the success of the ministry of the Twelve who had been ministering throughout there, okay? You know, I, I wonder how much we would benefit from simply following, demanding nothing, and listening to him but it's it's more than that. It's an example for us. Okay, he didn't ask who he was feeding, all right? And one of the great hallmarks of Christianity over the last almost 2,000 years now has been feeding people wherever they are. You know, when Yeshua sat down at Levi's house, um, we don't see any mention of repentance. He just ate with them, all right? He just ate with them. He ate with sinners, and it doesn't say they repented, okay? It just says he ate with them. And as believers, we're required to, I believe, to emulate that. When people need, we feed. Oh, geez, the rhymes. That was really horrible. Um, and we don't ask questions. We don't ask if they're worthy of being fed. We don't ask what denomination they are. We don't ask you know, if they are believers for the sake of excluding them if they are not. We follow our master and we see that people absolutely are our responsibility. And I'll see you next week for Walking on the Water. Thank you.